Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. Uh, for our listeners, we are right at the end, or approaching the end of Magneto Month. What a wild ride this has been. There's been a lot of serious content, but today's issue gets a little bit more silly, question mark. Uh, we'll talk about it when we get there. <laughs> the shifting continuity. We're going to be reviewing in the latter half of the episode, Professor Xavier and the X-Men number four. And I'll talk about this later in the show. This series was running in the mid-90s. It was a modern retelling of the old Silver Age stories. It's fun. The art is very cartoony. The book was only 99 cents then. But this is the only issue, number four, that adds all new content. The other issues give a little bit of interpretive stuff based on the early continuity issues. But this is the only one that has an original story in it. So on my show, it's the only one we'll take the time to actively review. Uh, I am thrilled to welcome uh, two new guests and a returning friend to the show. Uh, I am uh, I'm just super excited to meet Natalie Norris for the first time. Uh, I've been chatting with Ruth Ann Price for a long time, but it's really nice to meet them in person today. And Sarah Gailey, welcome back. Let me have you each introduce yourselves. Let us know your names and your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. And uh, today's question is, is there a time when you have perhaps been clumsy or a bit accident prone? If there's a specific story you'd like to share, I would love to hear it. Uh, let's begin with uh, Natalie Norris. Hi, Natalie. Hi, uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, my pronouns that I use are she, her. And let's see, oh, I'm the author of Dear Minnie, uh, which came out in July. It's my first graphic novel. Um, and then my accident prone story. So this is funny because I'm not a super clumsy person. So I had to really like dig deep. But then I realized that um, I'm like six years sober now. And so before that, like there are, you know, a plethora of stories of uh, accidents um, that happened when I was drinking. And the one that came to mind um, was just a random night out. Um, it was like a friend's party at a barn and there was like a whole wall of glass window panes. And this is like old glass, like, you know, each pane is maybe like a foot. And I was just doing my thing and I guess I like spun around and my ass just went through one of the window panes <laughs> and just totally... I guess it just like I don't know if it even like broke it just popped out like the whole window pane just like popped out shattered um and then of course I didn't I just sort of went about my time and I didn't remember for like a few maybe like a week later or something and I think either someone said something or, or it just came back to me and I was so embarrassed and I like immediately reached out and text the texted the girl whose um place it was but yeah, that was that was one that um, came to mind today. Uh, Natalie Natalie Norris with the ass that breaks glass. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's my so, superhero name. Yeah, it's so good to meet you. I'm gonna I'm gonna gush about Dear Minnie in just a moment. But um, okay. when I read this graphic novel and then reached out to you. I'm sure you were like an X Men podcast wants to talk about my book. Okay, but right. <laughs> why it's relevant? <laughs> it's an honor to meet you. Uh, let's go over to Sarah Gailey next. Hi, Sarah. It's so good to see you, my friend. Good morning. I'm so excited to be back. I'm Sarah Gailey. My pronouns are they, them. Um, listeners might know me from previous episodes of this podcast in which I professed my profound love of giant 
thieving women um, <laughs> or from my comics uh, writing for Buffy the Vampire Slayer or my recent series, Nerd Station with Liana Kangas. Um, my I'm so clumsy story. So I'm no longer religious or involved in uh, churches of any kind. But back in my storied past, I was um, quite involved in a church uh, that I came to as an adult. And I made the decision to get baptized and take communion, which is a big deal in a church. That's like a really big thing to do. And it's a big choice that you make. And you like in the church that I was part of, you do a bunch of studying to make sure that you actually want to do it. And, you know, you really build it up. Right. And then um, when you take communion, the way that it works for those who don't know is everyone walks up to the front of the church who is able to walk on their own two feet and you take communion in a big line. Um, and the priest hands you the little thing that you that you eat. And the very first time I was going to do this, I was like, oh, my gosh, it's really happening. I'm really doing it. And I took the little piece of bread from the priest and he said, this is the body of Christ. And I was like, OK, oh, my gosh. All right. It's really happening. And then I turned and I tripped and I dropped it. <laughs> and I panicked I was like I dropped Jesus on the floor what is what are they going to do to me and you know the priest is like this is not a big deal he does this a million times a day he's like keep walking you're holding up the line and I'm like do I pick up the body of Christ from the floor and eat it off the floor or do I throw <laughs> it in the trash which is worse I couldn't decide and in the end the um old lady in line right behind me tapped me on the shoulder and traded me her piece because she could tell that I was freaking out. It was very sweet. Um, she saved me from like bursting into tears. But I think about this all the time, especially now that I'm out. I'm not part of that uh, life or that genre of the world anymore. I'm like, wow, I really, uh, I really thought that I dropped the savior of mankind onto the ground and then was trying to figure out if I should still eat him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's worse to answer that question is teaching children they're eating the body of Christ in the first place. <laughs> uh, it's great to see you, Sarah. Uh, then let's go over to uh, Ruth Ann next. Hi. Hello. Um, I'm Ruth Ann Price. I, my pronouns are she, her. You probably don't know me from anywhere at all, unless you spend a lot of time in a suburban public library north of the city of Toronto. Um, depending on who your listeners are, if they spent some time in some of the comic stores in Montreal eh, almost 20 years ago, they might have picked up my zine, The Casual Librarian, um, which I was writing in the heyday of graphic like strip comics, James Kachalka, Ben Snake Pit, all of that. Um, and it's not fair, really, to ask me a story about when I am so clumsy, because as a nearly 50-year-old woman with ADHD, the answer is always um <laughs> an easier answer would be uh how many times you not clumsy and that would be never um just suffice it to say that things that are created to make the world safe for you potato peelers uh you know graters that sort of thing if if i prepare you a meal that involves a potato or ginger likely in addition to love there's a little bit of me in there as well <laughs> Gross. <laughs> it's nice to meet you. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. I'm a former Marvel Comics handbook writer, a documentarian and memoirist, uh, and a therapist is my day job. Uh, but now I'm the host of this show. I, uh, I I could tell a specific story, but I will just share. I have a 
bad habit of, I have flat feet. There's no arch in my feet. And I stub my toe all the fucking time. And it's not like the big toe. It's like the middle toe or the pinky toe or the, like, I'll stub it on the couch, on a step, on my bed frame. It, it happens to me like three times a month. And I, it hurts. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's just inconvenient, but I hate it every time. And I cannot seem to cure myself of, uh, of this particular habit. Uh, so I want to start today by getting to know Natalie just a little bit. Uh, Natalie, I have written a memoir about my insane life, and I have recently adapted it into a graphic memoir, which I'm getting ready to publish. Uh, so I've been reading a lot of graphic memoirs uh, in preparation for that, just kind of seeing how different people do different versions of their story. Uh, I know this was your first publication, but it is an incredible read. Uh, I'm going to have Maureen Burdock on the show as well, who did Queen of Snails through the same oh, publishing yeah. graphic, Moondi. Uh, both of those books uh, just astounded me with how gorgeously they were done. You did the art and the story. I would love for you to share with people a little bit of your origin story, if you will, kind of leading up to uh, your choice to publish this book. Sure. Um, so I guess... I've always been into art and writing, um, and I didn't come to comics until pretty recently, though. Uh, I guess it was like 2018. Um, and it's funny because there's the origin story of like the art side of, you know, how did I get to this place where I made the graphic memoir, but then there's sort of the origin story of everything that happened and all of these experiences I had as an adolescent, um, which left me feeling really alienated. And I think um, I had this need to um, express what had happened to me in order, mostly like for myself, I think, to make sense of it. And I was trying to do that through art and writing like later in high school and, and also college. But I always found that in like the fine arts or like studio art world, they really try and steer you away from creating things that have explicit narrative. They want you to leave room for the audience to have like their own interpretation and, and have it be a little more open-ended. And then um, in writing, which I loved because it allowed me to more directly express the things that I really felt compelled to express but then the end result and just sort of like the the writing world i think like wasn't inspiring to me i felt like to not include some form of like visual images um just wasn't didn't feel like i was able to convey or sort of like express myself in the way i wanted um so that's why when I finally like put two and two together and realized, oh wait, there's a whole world that has already figured this out. It's called comics. Um, that was really thrilling. Um, that was after college. And so from there, I just really like dug in and um, tried to learn as much about uh, comics as I could. Uh, why this story? I, uh, I don't know a lot about your life outside of this book, but why this particular story? Uh, tell uh, tell listeners a little bit about what Dear Minnie is. Yeah, so Dear Minnie, um, it's a graphic memoir, and it really takes place mostly over the course. Um, I mean, it spans a little bit under a year, but most of the plot happens in a period of about four weeks. 
um, mostly even three weeks. And that was the time that I spent with my friend Minnie, who is Austrian. And we met um, when we both did a language immersion program in France. Um, that was between my sophomore and junior year of high school. And then I was able to go back and visit her the next summer. So it's funny because you put out a memoir and people sort of think like, oh, now I know everything about you. And you're like, uh, <laughs> you know, three weeks of my life, <laughs> you know, and, and, some well, other and speaking as a memoirist for everything I shared, there's about 47 things I chose not to share. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I, I came into comics knowing I wanted to do a memoir, but I wasn't sure that it would actually be this story. So there were like a number of threads that felt um, sort of equally important to express. Um, and I, I touch on some of them in the book, like my chronic um, pain and, and all of the things I went through in like the medical world. Um, but I guess I settled on this story. Um, it just, a number of things happened and it was just a timing thing. So it just became clear that like, this was a story that I was ready to tell. Um, and also one that I just felt like there was like that fire, you know, that that need. And, and also the way that I decided to tell it in the form of a letter, um, it really just like came to me sort of like in an epiphany one night. And I think because it came to me so fully formed, I didn't question it. I just sort of went with it. And I think like the whole process of making the book was one in which I was actually trying to make as few decisions, conscious decisions as possible and just sort of like let whatever was like guiding me do it, <laughs> which I guess has been like a, a, a pattern in my life, um, which, you know, oftentimes isn't healthy, like when when you're like a heavy substance user and stuff and you're just like going, going, going. Um, but I found that comics in a way like has tapped into some of that same energy, like that feeling of like free fall that I used to have like drinking and partying. And, and now it's like I can kind of achieve that through um, through making the comics. Uh, I'm going to give my own kind of summary. And I know okay. as, a, as a reader, Dear Mini encapsulates a lot of themes for me. And the art and the, mm -hmm. the style of fonts and the way the words and the art swirl together are just a completely unique experience. But it's a coming of age story. It's about the male mm -hmm. gaze. It's about being a complicated woman. It's about sex posit positivity and self-discovery and self-destruction. It's about addiction and it's about finding your feet and path it's about sexual assault and overcoming assault uh, it's about trust there's a lot of really powerful incredible themes woven in and it really moved me to the point that it was hard to read and i had to put it down a few times but in a good way because i needed time to think and process about it uh ruth ann or sarah if you guys have had a chance to look at dear mini i'd love to hear some of your preliminary thoughts on this book yeah, I read it as soon as I knew that we were going to be on the podcast together and found it, uh, as you said, Chad, very immersive. It has a very diary-esque feel, which mm -hmm. is um, very, to me, like uh, fascinating as an artistic and stylistic choice because it gives the reader both a sense of sort of 
intimacy with the ideas being discussed and with the like the narrative personality of the book um while also giving a slight sense of like uh trespass it makes mm -hmm. as the reader it makes you really feel the depth of invitation that is existing between the narrative voice and you as the reader um i like to think about and talk about stories as being a conversation between the reader and the story and then when you're writing it it's a conversation between the writer and the story so there's a step of remove and that diaristic feel kind of takes that sense of remove away and makes it a very direct conversation um i also loved the end material the the kind of divulgence of source materials like here's where a lot of these images came from i thought was really fascinating and just a, a very generous choice to include. Well, thank you. Uh, I also read it as soon as I found out we were going to be on this. And I think the thing that stood out for me really is how gracious you are to your younger self. Mm -hmm. um, and like that can be really difficult, right? Looking back on things that have happened in the past and things that you've done that other people are going to question or going to wonder about what you were thinking or what you were doing and to just be able to hold sort of your former self that way with with mm -hmm. just such care uh, I found very touching thank you Natalie what are some of your thoughts on how the public has reacted to the reception of this book as you get out there and talk about it yeah I mean it's funny because it came out in July so I feel like it's my first book and it's all been like very new the publicity stuff and i think there's both this been a feeling of like overwhelm but then also some underwhelm because it's been sort of a gradual process in terms of like um getting reviews and and stuff like that um that's more of like the the mainstream press side so that's been a little like meh kind of stressful um but the part that I've really loved is that I've actually gotten to hear from quite a few readers. And I think that that, you know, sort of like what Sarah was saying, it's like that connection to the reader is so important. And it was such an important reason why I wanted to publish this story because I, um, for so many years, like felt so alone in this experience. And of course we know like, you know, sexual assault is really common. Um, but there are a number of is a terrible things. thing I have to say out loud. Well, yeah, <laughs> I know I say that very casually, but it's true. But at the same time, I didn't feel like I was really seeing depictions of the kind of experiences that I had. And so you can know that like the statistics are there, but there's still this feeling of like, am I actually sort of an outlier? And then of course, to receive all this feedback from people. And I think one, one of the main things they say is that it's relatable. And that has been, um, I mean, it's both sort of heartbreaking, but it's also been, I think, really important for me to hear and know that like, even though ev the details of everybody's experiences are gonna be different, it's like they can still relate to the core part of your experience. Uh, Sarah, let me direct a question to you about this. As a fiction writer, uh, a lot of the time, how do you, uh, how do you take 
autobiographical material or things from your life and put those into the stories you're telling, which is an interesting thing because even a graphic memoir or a memoir that we write becomes a somewhat fictionalized version of our stories and that it's portrayed in a particular way. Uh, how do you navigate that as a writer? This is the the question of narrativization of autobiographical experiences is so fascinating to me because this is part of how we understand and process our experiences, right? As we develop a narrative in our minds that sometimes then we dwell on and go over and over again is what we share with people. Um, and I spend a lot of my time in kind of working on understanding events of my own life, trying to extract the narrative away from it, trying to lift the story off to understand actual events outside the context of a story. And then I turn around and I write narratives for a living. Um, and my my life experiences often find their way into my prose fiction. Uh, my novel length fiction for adults is very uh, kind of, it's not autobiographical in nature, but it has a lot of the things I think about for my own life woven into it. And my approach to that is very opposite of the work I try to do with myself, where instead of trying to remove the narrativization from my life experiences and my feelings about them, I try to like apply a narrative. I try to say, okay, what if this was actually a story? Um, and how can I make that story complex enough to move readers to reconsider their own stories that they tell about themselves? Um, it's a very weird way to go about working. My therapist keeps asking me to do it differently, but I don't know how. <laughs> <laughs> I got to broach this question briefly with uh, JMJ Mateus earlier this month uh, for the uh, the early Magneto episode at the beginning of October, because he uh, I had recently read his graphic memoir, Brooklyn Nights, and talked about how he uses those feelings in uh, in his writing. Uh, he, and he's such he's a writer on a level that, that is so you know enormous over decades. Uh, it's a really special thing. I want to pause here. Natalie, I have some more questions for you, but Ruth, and I'd love to hear a little bit of your origin story as well, if you're willing to share just kind of your journey as a person and as a comics fan. Uh, sure. Um, I'm as actually born and raised uh, just outside of Dallas. So I'm a Canadian by way of Texas first. Um, I was raised uh, in an evangelical Christian home, um, went off to university, fell in love with a girl, walked away from church. Dios <laughs> what a familiar mio. story. <laughs> <laughs> what a surprise. Um, I always kind of liked like comics and cartoons and that sort of thing, but it obviously was not something that was encouraged in our house. Uh, so I really got into comics uh, in university. I had a friend who recommended the Neil Gaiman Sandman comics to me, and I got like into that. those uh, really, really heavily. And then I just started going to comic stores and I started getting stuff. And I had a friend from high school who lived in Austin and he drew a diary comic. And so I got sort of into that. And I just, I wander around, you know, the ADHD again, the hyperfixation, it changes, it shifts focus. So right now my focus happens to be on superheroes. So <laughs> what about your entry into the X-Men? Uh, my entry into the X-Men is all Scarlet Witch related. Um, I feel like I misled you when I told you I was preparing my outfit. What I really meant was that I'm just picking which Scarlet Witch t-shirt I was going to wear. Um, I'm so happy we're having to <laughs> randomly have you on a Scarlet Witch episode then. <laughs> I know. I was so pleased. I was like, oh, he must have done that on purpose. That's what I'm telling myself. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, I got into X-Men actually 
because I was really excited about Steve Orlando's new Scarlet Witch run that started dropping in January. And so I was listening to podcasts with him. So I found your episode with him, just searching Steve Orlando with Scarlet Witch on Spotify. And then, then in that podcast, which was also with Russell Dodderman, you guys mentioned the Wanda Maximoff trial. So I went back and listened to the Wanda Maximoff trial. And then I was like, okay, well, this whole X-Men thing is like very large. I should start poking at it. And so now I'm poking at it. I, uh, I'm so happy you are. In fact, uh, we're recording this in late September. The episode I just released today features Steve Orlando. And we talk about Wanda a little more, but it's an ice bat episode. Uh, Steve's such a good guy. Uh, Natalie and Sarah, I would love to hear your contributions here as well. Talk to us about, it's one thing to create a book. It's another to find a publisher, to finish a book, to invest money and time into a book and to put a book out there. Uh, there's a quote I want to throw out here quickly. And I had this playing in my head constantly when I published my own memoir five years ago. Anna Nalek, which I'm not an enormous Anna Nalek fan by any means, but she wrote a song called Breathe years ago. And there's a stanza in that song that says, and I'm not, I'm not going to sing for you guys, sorry. <laughs> she says, I feel like I'm naked in front of a crowd because these words are my diary screaming out loud. And I know that you'll use them however you want to. And I remember that just playing and playing and playing in my head because my family is still very religious and my book's largely about leaving religion. Uh, I would love to hear some of your thoughts on what it's like to publish and uh, some of the hurdles that you faced along the way. Sure. Um, it's definitely been a wild ride. <laughs> I think that there's a, a really different like emotional experience when you're making the work. Like it's hard in its own way, but then, yeah, when you put it out into the world, that can be overwhelming in a different way. And I think it was something that even though I tried to prepare, I knew it was gonna be intense, you kind of can't prepare for it, um, at least with the first book, because it's so new. Um, I do think that it's funny that the song that you quoted um, being like naked in front of a crowd, it's like in my book, I'm literally naked literally a naked. lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, so um, I think what's funny about that for me is that that is not such a problem. I think like that doesn't actually bother me, but I'm aware that it's not, it's sort of frowned upon by a lot of the society um, and also like there is definitely like initially discomfort within my family in terms of like okay but why do you have to make it so explicit um so i think where i get sort of freaked out is that this feeling like there's like some like modesty gauge that like other people just like maybe naturally have or was like really drilled into them and i just don't have and then being worried that because i can't gauge what is like considered sort of like socially appropriate ways to like um discuss like adolescent sexuality or, or sexual assault there's sort of like that fear of like oh no like are people going to take this the wrong way because i i i see it as sort of like a neutral like nudity um but luckily like so far there's been i've been sort of like surprised at the at the more like normal reaction to it um and I think, yeah, that that's something that has been 
interesting and I know definitely still freaks some of my family out. <laughs> I uh, I wrote a chapter in my book about having a threesome and I like, yeah. stories about like guys asking about how big's your dick on Grinder, And I right. remember thinking like, my mom's going to read this. And I have yeah. to go to a place of like, it's not about my mom. Like my target audience is helping people who are navigating a similar journey. And it's not right. just about coming out, but also about like understanding what the gay community is like when you're relate raised mm -hmm. in like a very religious environment. So like I remember talking to my mom, like, if you want to read it, read it, but I would not recommend it. <laughs> it's your choice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sarah, what are your thoughts on this? Gosh, I have, I think almost I can't decide if this is it's very like horseshoe theory, right? If I don't know if it's the same or opposite experience where I tend to write quite obliquely about my personal experiences. I don't think of myself as an intensely private person, but other people describe me that way. So I guess I like, I don't like talking about myself and the things that I've gone through directly, but I write about the thing, things that have happened in my life a lot in my work and people who know me as a result end up looking for themselves in my work. And so I'll like, I'll talk to someone and they'll be like, I read your latest novel. Is this character supposed to be me? Because this thing that they did mirrors this thing that I did. And I'm like, first of all, if you see yourself in that character, that's for, that's your business. Maybe you have <laughs> some stuff to work on, but also like, get out of here. It always kind of drives me nuts. I'm like, I'm, I'm very intentionally sticking things from my life into a blender and trying to make them into paper mache to build a new shape out of. I don't know people. if you are currently in a romantic relationship, but I'm picturing your girlfriend saying, am I a black cat or am I Kendra in your story? Which one? <laughs> she always knows exactly when she's in my books because I'm usually putting funny things that she has said. And I'm like, hey, I'm stealing your joke for this. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's always interesting. And the people who I do wish would notice themselves and do some reflecting and some changing and maybe some apologizing never spot themselves at all. Those are the people who are always like, I love this book. I thought all the characters were doing a really good job. And I'm like, okay, well, oh, no. not this time. Maybe the next one. <laughs> uh, Natalie, how does one publish a graphic memoir? We have a lot of listeners who are aspiring comic book professionals, writers, or artists. Uh, what advice do you have for people on what it's like to take this work that you spend so much time putting together and then getting it out there? Yeah, so I think um, it's important to understand like the different types of publishers and the ways that they're going to interact with your work. Um, so for me, I knew that I really didn't like people like meddling or, or editing um, the story. It's like obviously you have to edit for continuity or typos and stuff. Um, so I wanted a publisher that would be... Um, hands off for the most part and then also wouldn't try and censor anything or be uncomfortable with adult material um so i sort of knew from the beginning that my top choice was fantagraphics um but i think because i knew that was the one that sort of made the most sense i was really scared to reach out to them um i had connected with the my editor there um through I went to the Center for Cartoon Studies and we had um, an industry day where he actually wasn't able to come but we were allowed to like send him mini comics so I did that and I think like just having a preliminary um, 
connection so that he like recognized my name when I did eventually send him um my book uh so I think yeah finding a way to connect with someone ahead of time like before you just like cold call them um and I know like a lot of people you can even just like go up to tables at um conventions and give people the mini comics um and try and have like more of a conversation if you're able to um and yeah and obviously like a lot of my friends have gotten agents i initially tried to get an agent and just that's, was that's not, not easy to do before you're published yeah no yeah it's like a catch-22 also it was like spring of 2020 so the whole world obviously had like bigger things on their mind and like people were saying like publishing might not make it through the pandemic or whatever um and i i ended up being glad that i didn't get an agent because you don't need one to work with ranger graphics um but yeah i think definitely if you want to go bigger publisher you want an agent um if you want to go smaller publisher you don't need one mm -hmm. uh sarah do you have comments on that as a thriving and successful writer yourself <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my path to publication was pretty unusual. I I uh, came through short story writing, um, connected with an agent who saw my short stories and saw potential in them, ended up working to develop a novel concept in order to work with that agent. Um, and then after the publication of my first novella, ended up connecting with a comics editor who did the exact same thing, saw my novella and said, you should be writing comics also. So I've been incredibly fortunate. I have been like, like, you know, moonshot lucky. Um, but also I always uh, struggle when people say things like, can you give me any advice on how to make it in publishing? Because I'm like, to have the best luck in the whole world. I don't know. <laughs> That's all I got for you. I think it takes a lot of dedication. You got to be willing to invest. And sometimes that means money. It means hiring artists. It means printing things. It means going to conventions. As Natalie's talking about meeting people, some of it's job interviews, some of it's vibes-based conversations and seeing how people connect to you. Uh, but it's also about having a unique story and a strong pitch. And some of those skills are not easy for people. I know a lot of writers will say, practice, 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 if you're writing and drawing. Like, that's what you need to do. But you got to have a particular vision in mind and then be willing to uh, like take a lot of feedback about it and adjust it as needed. Were there a lot of changes made to Dear Many before it was published? Uh, no. <laughs> it stayed pretty close to the original draft, um, which... I'll definitely make more changes. Um, I'm starting the second book now, but the first draft uh, or the first book really did stay pretty close to how I originally made it. Um, conversation shift for just a minute. Sarah, White Widow is going to be coming out shortly. We had a chance to talk about this briefly on my show previously, but I would love for you to give us a selling pitch for White Widow. I, you have perfect timing because just yesterday I turned in the final script in this four-issue miniseries Yay! Uh, for White Widow. Yelena Belova, the White Widow, uh, queen of my heart, is the world's foremost spy and assassin. Um, you may know her if you watch the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe Black Widow movie as the character played by Florence Pugh. The amazing Florence Pugh, my word. Flawless, absolutely radiates charm and chaos. Um, and I had the great good fortune to be invited to write her very first solo 
series with Marvel. So that's coming out in November. You'll get to know Yelena Belova as she struggles to find out who she is outside the confines of an international organization of spies and assassins controlling her every thought and opinion. She is settling into what she hopes will be a normal life. Of course, it will not be all that normal. Um, but it's going to be a really <laughs> fun series. I'm having a blast. I get to work with Italian artist Alessandro Miracolo, who is mm. phenomenal. His character design is outrageous. Um, we're giving, uh, I'm trying to think of, ooh, I almost just spoiled something. Cut this well, I can, I can edit, but you caught yourself. <laughs> <laughs> ooh, that was a close call. We're having a blast, and I hope that you'll pick it up in comic shops in November. Can you give us hints as to any villains that we may predict in this series or not? I, I mean, can't. when we put this out, I think your first issue will be out, right? October 23rd is when we drop this. I think your first issue drops I, before then? Or is it November? I think, I think we're out in November unless they moved it sooner. We'll um, err on the side of safety then. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. But I can tell you, because this isn't a big spoiler, it's already in the previews um, synopses that there is a mega corporation armament industries that uh yelena and her neighbors will have to confront as the company tries to have an outsized impact on the small town where they live what was it like to you for you to research this character she's got a wild history <laughs> researching her was so much fun um i mean i didn't know a ton about yelena belova when i first heard from marvel you know, they said, would you be interested in writing this? And I was like, oh, I, don't, I don't know how good a fit this is going to be for me because I am not that well-versed in this character. And then I read the material they sent over. I watched uh, her appearances and the movies and shows that she's been in. And I realized that she's the perfect character for me. She's a chaotic uh, assassin spy whose whole uh, journey that she needs to go on the way that her character has been set up is figuring out who she is when she escapes a high control environment. And that has mirrored my life so fully um, escaping a high control environment and then trying to figure out, okay, how do you build an identity after spending a life with everyone else telling you who you are? Um, I got to do so much fun reading for this. I got to do so much fun uh, investigating fandom um, I had to stop that research after I started writing because as a writer, there's a big ethical boundary where you need to not be um, letting fan ideas get kind of into your brain. You can end up accidentally kind of digesting and stealing other people's ideas. It's no good. But before writing, I kind of just went on Tumblr and looked up what fans had to say about White Widow and what they love about her and what what stirs their affection for her. And it was all the same things that I love about her is her incredible ability to uh, adapt to new environments and to uh, find ways to be creatively violent in order to achieve her goals. And her incredible sense of humor in the face of profoundly traumatizing situations, which I very much vibe with. Uh, she's I just love her. She's one of those characters, as we talk about her, I realize how fond of her I am, but I hadn't given a lot of thought to why beforehand. Whenever I hear Florence Pugh, I don't know if you guys saw the Barbie movie, there's that line where 
uh, Margot Robbie's like really uh, like really struggling with something vulnerable and like the the narrator like breaks in and is like you know note to the director if you're trying to portray vulnerability showing the flawless Margot Robbie in this space is perhaps not your best moment and then Florence Pugh gives me that like perfection vibe she's <laughs> she's ridiculous uh, Ruth Ann uh, what is it about the Scarlet Witch that you love and I would love for you to have a chance to ask any questions of Sarah or Natalie before we begin to transition uh, sure. So I came to Scarlet Witch through the MCU. So part of it is just Elizabeth Olsen so perfectly embodies the Scarlet oh, Witch. Yeah, yeah. Um, but just, I think there was something like WandaVision came out and and that whole exploration, it was the beginning of the pandemic and everything was a total mess. And it really cracked open grief for me in a way that hadn't ever happened before. Um, so, and there's just, there's so much loss and grief. So as, as a proxy for me actually feeling things myself, um, the Scarlet Witch is a really, really great substitute. So I'm very grateful to her and all of her suffering. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to tell Sarah that thank you for convincing me to subscribe to White Widow. Now I will do that at my comic store on Wednesday, uh, because I saw an ad, I think it was in Uncanny Adventures. I thought it was coming out in October too. I thought that's what it said. But anyway, uh, we'll be happy when it hits our exactly. hands. <laughs> yeah, I exactly. could be wrong. I, my publication dates this year have been changing every 10 seconds. So I would not be surprised if it has changed to October and I just missed it. But you're, the, the description. So I was like, oh, so White Widow was a fundamentalist Christian, uh, basically based on your description of, of what she was trying to do. So consider me signed up. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Natalie. I, what I'm really wondering is, have you heard from Minnie? <laughs> Are you guys back in touch? Yeah, so that, um, I get more into that in the second book. Um, but yeah, we've been in touch since I did the whole draft and then I sent it to her. And it was that sort of like awkward do or die moment of like, oh God, what if she doesn't want me to do this? You know, because it is very sort of... Like it also exposes things about her past that um, while I tried not to like put in too much, it's like obviously there are things that maybe she wouldn't want out there, but instead she had really the opposite reaction and was very, um, said she was like honored to have this book be like addressed to her and um, wants to be able to give it to women in her life and so um yeah it's like our, our correspondences are sort of scattered um but i'm hoping that it's something that uh will actually be helpful for her as well um to not just have to sort of like carry this alone it's like now there's like a vehicle that if she chooses to share um she could do that mm -hmm. Fantastic. It's so nice to get to know you, uh, Natalie and Ruthann, both, uh, and and just to hear everyone share together. This is uh, this has been wonderful. Uh, Natalie, I'd love to hear what your thoughts were when you got uh, a, a, an invitation from an X-Men podcast. <laughs> Are you a superhero <laughs> fan? Uh, tell me a little bit about your relationship to these characters, or even what it was like for you to delve into this random issue of, of comic books from the middle of nowhere. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, I was pretty surprised when you reached out. Um, but I think you quickly explained um, 
that it's like a group of queer friends and talking about the issues and I felt like there'd probably be like room for humor and and not taking this so seriously in a way even though obviously like um I totally like respect the fandom and everything uh for me I was obsessed with the x-men movies as a kid that like hit right at the perfect age i was like it might have been a little before i started doing martial arts like i just i wanted to be um i mean i my favorite was mystique because come on (laughs) you know um and so growing up um oh also in the second one the woman who has the like she's like the equivalent of wolverine but with the blades that come out of her fingers she was oh x degree yeah or laura kinney yeah 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 or, I or think maybe you're thinking her, lady death strike uh, either of those are incredible characters I don't, I don't even know what her name was i feel like she was just always stabbing wolverine and i love <laughs> the death whole death. thing <laughs> <laughs> so that was you know i definitely like have a, a a fondness for x-men um through that and then getting to look at this issue was really funny. I mean, like I said, I work in a comics library, and so we do have um, a lot of superhero comics, and I've read some that are newer, like there was that issue or um, like graphic novel of uh, Harley Quinn that I think Mariko Tamaki wrote, and that was so fun. Um, so I, I, I think like, Harley Quinn is Sarah Gailey's type. We don't want to get off track. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'll say on X-Men. Um, <laughs> yeah, so my initial thoughts on the art, um, I was like, where are their noses? Their noses are so soft. <laughs> it totally just freaked me out. And I, I think also, like, I know superhero comics have sort of been accused of, like, portraying unrealistic standards of beauty like the figures are so exaggerated but I was sort of like I don't know that these characters are beautiful like they're kind of terrifying in the way that they are so exaggerated that they have like these like little tiny little noses and and their their physique and there's the moment um there was such a like magneto jump scare moment when we first see him (laughs) (laughs) oh this is fun uh, so yeah. let's dive into the issue today. This is uh, Professor Xavier and the X-Men number four. I set this up slightly earlier. Let me give a couple of reasons about why this matters to uh, continuity. Uh, so this, again, was a reprint, not a reprint, modern retellings of the original stories. But this one reveals entirely new content because it's not part of the original series. And we see a shift in writer here. This is written by Fabian Nicieza, who was active in the X-Books at the time. And he's going back and telling an early adventure. X-Men number one back in 1963 opens with Xavier welcoming his five original students to the school. This is one of the issues, and there are a handful of them, that shows him kind of in the early days where he's trying to recruit different people considering who he wants to recruit. I will address the giant continuity elephant that we're not going to spend a lot of time on. We see Xavier interacting with Moira McTaggart in this issue. Moira McTaggart was introduced as a supporting character by Chris Claremont in the early 70s. Uh, She was a genetic researcher and one of the biggest allies of the X-Men for years. Just a couple of years ago, Jonathan Hickman told the story about how Moira McTaggart 
is like a thousand year old woman who has lived in like nine previous timelines. And she like is manipulating Xavier and Magneto through a lot of their history. Uh, we can always read into these early appearances and look for those motivations in her character, but they did not exist at the time that this was written. So we'll just kind of mention that as a blanket statement at the start and then not worry about it today. Although it was a really fascinating game to play in some ways because she's very much a puppet master in a lot of Xavier's history when you have that retcon. Uh, we also see some really interesting interpretations of the early formation of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants here. Uh, we see the origin story of the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver multiple times, and we get the common story of a crowd of people rushed after them, and then Magneto saved them and recruited them, which is how they were guilted into joining the Brotherhood. There have been three or four different interpretations of that story about how the mob attacks them. Uh, it's different depending on the origin story that you're reading. Maybe they attack them multiple times, maybe Magneto saved them multiple times, but in this particular issue, we get one specific version of that story. And we won't take time to explore the others, but please go listen to other prequel episodes I've done about Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, including one called Avengers Origins, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, number one, in which there's a very different version of this story told. Uh, so this is from February 1996. The title of this story is Opportunities Missed. Fabian Nicias is the writer. Uh, the incredible penciler Jan Dersema is on this. And Jan Dersema is a legendary comic book artist who has had decades in the business, which is always an impressive thing, particularly for a female uh, identifying penciler, because we don't see a lot of that in the early books. I mean, Marie Severin, uh, there's a few others that uh, that are classic artists, June Brigman, who I've gotten to interview. But Jan Dersema is someone that I would love, love, love to talk to. She has a very cartoony style. She's also married to another really famous artist uh, named Tom Mann. Drake. Uh, she's nearly 70 now. I would love to have her on my show sometime. Uh, so we'll, we'll see if I can make that happen ever. Uh, the inker here is Jesse Delperdang. Matt Webb is the colorist. Uh, Pat Brousseau is the letterer. And Kelly Corvace is the editor. Uh, let me just hear kind of preliminary thoughts from Sarah and Ruthann. What was it like for you to touch this particular issue in continuity before we delve into the story? I thought this was so much fun. I had the time of my life reading this. Um, it's very Similar to some of the other earlier X-Men uh, stuff that I've read with you, Chad, it's very soapy in tone, which is my favorite. It's got a very, like, CW drama narrative aesthetic. I'm incredibly fond of that. Um, and I also think that the art in this issue is beautiful. Like, the color story is stunning, and the the physicality of the characters is incredible. I had a blast. Ruthann? Uh, I also really enjoyed it. It was fun. I ordered an actual paper copy from like Canadian book uh, comics bin. So that was the, just to hold a comic that has that, that weird newsprint paper is so strange these days. Um, I also really enjoyed the art. It's, it's very different. I hadn't thought about the nose thing, but as soon as you said it, I looked at the cover and I'm like, oh yeah, Wanda looks like Voldemort. <laughs> yeah. my youngest child can do a Voldemort nose they like uh they like suck their nostrils in and like make this face and it creeps me out all the time <laughs> truly horrifying um I, I also thought that it was really a shame that they decided to take Wanda out of her peasant outfit and put her in the Scarlet Witch outfit that seemed like a real step down to me uh, just in general um but yeah it's interesting just to see yet another layer of that origin story and that continuity and I don't know if they thought maybe that putting Xavier at the beginning, trying to recruit them, made someone more sympathetic. 
But like the man is a telepath. So where was Xavier when they were being attacked by a mob of people? I, I don't know. Opportunities missed seem to be his, not theirs. But I mean, I am not a big Xavier <laughs> fan, but it's a big planet. <laughs> I mean, sure, but he was paying attention to them. So he was busy knocking a bunch of papers off the desk. That takes a lot of your time and concentration, as I've learned from my cats. Caressing Magneto's photo, which he seems to do a lot of. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to be. This is a very cartoony style. I'm a huge gender sema fan, but we are going to poke fun at some of what uh, what happens on this cover. I love when artists will take something that's ridiculous, like Wanda's little like toilet seat cover, like face cowl, <laughs> and then exaggerate it. Because on this cover, it's like blown up to like three times the size. Also, her waist looks like it's about three inches thick. Uh, we get like a very posy Magneto. Quicksilver's looking very like angry and heroic here and mastermind lurking in the background uh toad looking very creepy kind of leaning down on the front i love all of these characters except for mastermind he's real creepy uh what are your thoughts on this cover you guys i have to say i one of my favorite things about reading comics from different eras is getting a lens on the makeup looks that were popular during the time that the comic was published and right now um as we're recording this a really big makeup trend that's reflected in comics, there's two blush placements. And one of them is like up around the temples and really intense pinks going all the way from the brow down around the cheekbone, kind of like outlining the outside of the eye. And one of them is the nose blush, like a very, very pink nose. And that's in a lot of comic art right now is this very pink nose and like very um, almost inner corner of the eye blush placement. And on Wanda on this cover, her blush is like, shoop from her temple all the way down to the outer corner of her lip, this huge pink wash. And it's very intense. And I am so into it alongside the dark lip. It's giving 90s. It's like, it's giving club. I really like it. Um, I'm I'm down with Toad on this cover too. I love his, he's, he's giving face. He is giving veteran character actor. He is giving us just 100% anti-charisma. And I, I love this for him. There's like a yellow wash around his eyes that's like, whoa. Yes, yes. <laughs> Give us jaundice, my love. Ugh, I'm so into it. Uh, Natalie, what were your thoughts on the cover? Yeah, I mean, the cover, it's interesting. It's like Magneto's cloak sort of in like cases all of them. Um, it's giving a Fantasia enter energy for those of you yeah. that know the character Fantasia. <laughs> oh, totally. Um, I think one thing that also I found funny about this comic is I had such a hard time telling people's ages. Like looking at um, the the oh, what is the silver-haired um, Quicksilver? Quicksilver. Yes. Um, like when I first saw him, I thought he was the same age as uh Xavier and then to hear oh no they're really young um so I think it's just interesting the way maybe that they try and like masculinize the faces where it's like there's furrowed brows and 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 more lines that then it definitely I was like wait he's young how young is young <laughs> like, well and uh, Xavier doesn't help this because he's calling everyone my child the entire yeah. time <laughs> Yeah, so it's like so, how old are these people 30 and you're calling them my child? Or exactly. is Xavier 30 or like 65? We don't quite know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he's okay. 22 and he's like talking down to the 21 year olds in the room. 
The other thing I'll just cover in one sentence, although it's very complicated. This was written in 96. So the intent at this time, uh, we're putting this in the Magneto context, by the way, first of all. So this is in an episode or in a month of all Magneto stories. This is the episode that we're talking about the early relationship between Magneto and Charles Xavier, who are like best friends, but also worst enemies. If you go back and read Uncanny X-Men 161 by Chris Claremont, it's a beautiful interpretation of that. But we've also got to cover issues like X-Men minus one on my show and Uncanny X-Men minus one, or excuse me, Uncanny, yeah, that was correct, uh, where we get to see some of the early versions of this story. Uh, these two are really interesting, and they have an interesting confrontation in this issue. The second piece, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver at this time were Magneto's children, but when they originally served on the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, they did not know that. So in this era, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are being recruited to the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. The original story is Magneto's wife Magda was scared away when he killed a village full of people because their daughter died. We covered that on my show earlier this month. Uh, she then ran to Mount Wondergore uh, in Transia, where the the twins were born. This is where Bova comes in. And then they're placed with the Maximoffs. Go see my episode about the Maximoffs, which came out just a few weeks prior to the release of this. Uh, and then the modern retcon now is that they were never Magneto's children. Instead, they were genetic products. They're the daughter of a, uh, excuse me, they're the children of another Scarlet Witch character, uh, we've rec we've covered this on my show, but the intent at this time was that they were the children of Magneto. So we get some vulnerable stuff with Magneto talking about his wife and his dead daughter in this issue, and he's opening up to the kids that he does not know are his. Although later we turn out it turns out they're not his at all. So there's some crazy continuity. We'll just like dump all that out there at the beginning so we can move into the story. Uh, okay, I'm gonna cover the first few pages here, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, we get a we open up on Transia. Now the story is for Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. There was a fire in the they use the word gypsy here. We like to use Romani instead. But in the Romani camp where they grew up, their mother was believed to be killed, uh, Maria Maximoff. Their father turns out to be an evil puppeteer, but he's gone too. Anyway, they live on their own in the wilderness for a number of years uh, before they get recruited to the Brotherhood. So we're here in this era. We are in Transia. Uh, Pietro's wearing his like classic green. Wanda's looking gorgeous in like shoulders exposed, uh, titties out, like long red skirt look. And Xavier comes across right on page one uh, as very desperate to recruit them. Please accept my offer. Become part of something special, he says. And Pietro says, how would joining your school for gifted youngsters, in quotes, do that for us, Professor X? And he says, you guys are so special. I can train you to use your gifts. And Wanda's surprised that he even knows they're mutants. He reveals that he's a telepath. Uh, I could read your mind. And Pietro says, you could change our minds as well. He says, and this is classic coming from Charles Xavier. I would never use my abilities inappropriately, Pietro. My chosen role is to ensure that all mutants act responsibly amongst themselves and mankind. Now, this man always sets his own ethics, and it's very apparent in this issue as well. Uh, and uh, Pietro very snarkily says, well, if you, if you are a mind reader, you don't have to be a mind reader to know what my answer to all of this is. Now, there's a little girl in this issue who's very cute. Uh, she keeps, like, getting into trouble. Uh, she's chasing her ball into the road, and Pietro runs and saves her very quickly, which is cute. And uh, he's like, you know, we don't need to be training. Look how good I am at using my super speed. Uh, and uh, Xavier's just, like, cannot understand why they do not accept his offer. So he goes back to Moira McTaggart. 
And uh, I'm not going to try a Scottish brogue today, but she says, you know, you didn't expect every mutant to join your school, did you? Uh, it turns out they're hanging out on Muir Island. And uh, Moira says, you know, what about those other mutants you've been looking at? There's that boy in uh, boy in Russia, that's Colossus, or that blue guy in Germany, that's Nightcrawler, or that woman in Africa. She's old enough, and uh, even though the other two are too young, and that's, of course, Storm. He feels like the cultural difference would be too much for Storm to accept. And of course, he's going to later reach out to these students in giant size. X-Men number one. Uh, and uh, Xavier's primary worry is that uh, if any mutants that he does not recruit are going to wind up in uh, the employ of Magneto, who he's really worried because they have very different visions. Magneto wants mutant supremacy. Xavier wants to peacefully coexist. There's a quick summary of the first few pages. Uh, do we have any thoughts from our panel here about uh, the portrayal of these characters so far? Um, I, I love Xavier saying I would never use my powers inappropriately. <laughs> um, I wonder if he's ever read a comic called X-Men. Uh, that would beg to differ. I'm obsessed with it. I, I love that energy from him. Always trust someone who says I would never do anything bad. We've, uh, we've done a couple episodes about the ethics of telepathy, which is interesting, but also the use of telepathy. If we're employing this in a sci-fi understanding, it's easier to like remove a memory from someone is than it is to like change their motivation or change their mind. If he brought these kids into their school against their will, he'd have to maintain constant control and like constantly reorient them, which is not an easy thing to do when you have a power that you have to use in specific ways. Uh, so I, I think that's one of the questions is you kind of surprised you didn't just make them come, but I don't think that works. Yeah, I thought that the power dynamic in this was interesting because he seemed to really not have the upper hand with them. And so, um, yeah, it it was interesting because I always think of him as sort of like the leader, but then it was clear that he doesn't have a lot of like bargaining power in terms of convincing these people who right now are just living on their own like to come to his school like that that is like a strange um a strange offer it's really fun to see xavier considering nightcrawler colossus and storm here as well it adds a level of continuity because he's later going to bring these students in when his original team's gone but he's going to stick with the white pretty mutants at least uh the white pretty american mutants at least at the beginning <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Natalie, will you take us through the next? Oh, uh, Ruth Ann, did you have thoughts on the first few pages? I was just going to say, I found it interesting that Pietro basically didn't want to go with Xavier because he didn't want to join someone who, who's like whose organization basically is predicated on the difference between mutants and humans, especially considering what happens later. Well, and go see my trial of Pietro. Or we, we have a Quicksilver trial on my show, but I think his motivation kind of in the early era is like, my sister is my family. I'm the boss. I'm the man in the family. She has to do what I say. It's my job to protect her. Like he's giving a lot, off a lot of those vibes here yeah. and we don't want to trust anybody else. And it's not until Magneto uh, proves himself rather useful to helping save Wanda that Pietro reluctantly agrees to go. So Xavier needed to stage some sort of thing where Wanda's in danger. He saves them and then the twins would have gone because uh, Wanda <laughs> did what Pietro said and Pietro's not going to help unless it's going to benefit Wanda. So there's a lot of thoughts there. Uh, Natalie, take us through the next few pages. Uh, tell us what happens. And I'm here to support you as needed, my friend. Sure. Yeah. So we're back in Transia and we have the siblings. They're walking through their little village and we see this uh, little girl again, Matilde. 
And she's my favorite character in this issue. Yeah. <laughs> and she's so cute. She's always sort of up to no good or not up to no good, but um, as you see, um, she's rolling this big snowball, which looks kind of like a a snow roll, like a crescent roll almost, um, up the hill. And they're talking about, oh, like she hasn't been in trouble in a few days. But then as they're saying this, of course, um, she falls. The giant snowball is, you know, coming after her uh, and she's headed towards this frozen lake that is uh, right below. And so the brother... Um, Pietro, I'm just going to read this line. He's so exasperated. Wanda goes, Pietro, she's... And he goes, complete your sentence with any one of a variety of lethal choices, sister. This little girl will find a way to fill in the blank. <laughs> I know, <laughs> he's so doing her every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so he, he tries to go, but apparently um, he has not learned to run quickly on snow. So he sort of falls, and in that moment, um, in order to save her, uh, Scarlet Witch uh, sends out this like red lobby thing, her powers, and it um, severs a giant tree. And then that tree luckily falls right between the girl, Matilde, and the water. So it really is like saved just in the nick of time. But of course, there are villagers who see this happen and they immediately are like, oh my gosh, she's a witch. If this was a if this was a sitcom, Matilde would have sat up in the snow and been like, "Whoops!" and like the music. Yeah. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> it's, just, it's her right? gag. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. So the siblings they're a little worried because they can. I feel like they already sense the the town turning against them. Pietro says, "Superstitious fools." Um, and then Matilde goes back to her mom. But the villagers are angry, and then nighttime falls, and they have come to their house with torches, and the siblings uh, decide to make a run for it. So uh, Pietro is holding Wanda, they run across, um, but someone hits them with a rock, and then they fall down, and the villagers envelop them, and, you know, it looks like you know are they dead we don't know and then uh something happens a rushing swirl of electromagnetic energy and then uh yeah this is where i had the magneto jump scare but magneto <laughs> says, i offer you the opportunity to never run in fear again my name is yeah. magneto and i have come to offer you the world as his eye twinkles in the snow right yeah it's so good was it su was it surprising for you to see Magneto here? Was that I, well? I mean, he was on the cover. Probably not that surprising. I was a little surprised because I think I was so focused on the dynamic between uh, Xavier and the siblings uh, that I sort of naively forgot that everything sort of goes back to that uh, tension between Xavier and Magneto and and recruiting. Uh, Magneto takes them back to a castle. This was more of an order than a request. And uh, he says it's meant to be a refuge for mutants against mankind's aggressions. Uh, go listen to my episode on Asteroid M with Hussein Rashid coming out also this month, where we talk a lot about the mutant homeland concept. Uh, he also mentions a large sum of gold that he recently came into, which is a reference to Uncanny X-Men 161, where he fights Nazis and steals their whole gold supply. Uh, this, is a, this is a lot of fun. I hope I give you a, an easy section, Natalie. Did not have to delve too deeply in, but uh, beautifully done, my friend. Oh, sure, yeah. What are your thoughts uh, from Sarah and Ruthann on this section? 
Oh, fantastic. I love a mischievous little child who blows up everyone's day just by doing activities. <laughs> um, again, fantastic art. Like the shift from day to night is really beautifully rendered. I think in the colors here, I love that the villagers, as they get more aggressive, get turned kind of into a, a like two color, like orange and black, like color story that makes them more threatening and anonymous. I also just like, I'm, we talked about on the cover how Wanda has like a three inch waistline and when she and Pietro fall onto the snow, it's like her waist just shrinks with every panel until we get this one where they're staring up at Magneto and you can see that the entire, she's wearing like a, a Rolex around her waist. Um, <laughs> and I also really love that Magneto is described as having a voice like molten steel cooled in the heart of an iceberg. This is the drama that I want. And this is the drama that I think Magneto deserves. It's pitch perfect for him. Excellent. Uh, Ruth, any thoughts? Uh, I have nothing to add. I'm learning a lot about how to look and read comics right now. So just going <laughs> to listen. It's really fun. Uh, this is this is the thing I get on this show regularly because it's one thing to read a comic, but when you get to like di like digest it and talk about it, you like notice a lot more. It's a fun process. Uh, Sarah, take us through the next section. What happens next? I would love to. So Magneto introduces the Brotherhood of Mutants to uh, Wanda and Pietro, which, by the way, reminds me of this thing where um, I don't know if this was before or after they were called the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And there's this kind of in-joke in my friend group about how, on the one hand, it's a bad PR move to name yourself the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. But on the other hand, me and everyone I know would be like, where do I sign up for the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants? That sounds so much fun. Well, they only use the word evil because who fucking cares what the humans think? Let's scare them. Yeah. Like, let's, yes. let's, let's take it. Let's own it. Exactly. Um, the t we meet, you know, the whole gang and the Toad and Mastermind are immediately fighting over who gets the right to hit on Wanda. Wanda looks straight up ready to throw down with Toad. She is facing up to him, so ready to fight. She wants to, she wants to destroy him. Um, beautiful, rich colors on this page and very clear action as Toad springs across the room to try to. I guess seduce Wanda by shoving his entire face into her mouth. He's um, beautiful, Master. Have you brought her as a present <laughs> for your faithful servant, the Toad? <laughs> exactly the first I heard in my head. That was uncanny. Get out I of my him. mind, Xavier. <laughs> um, Magneto is instantly like, um, welcome to my castle. You have to hate the X-Men. And here's a picture of them looking rad as hell. This is the biggest interpersonal red flag a person can throw up when you meet them. And the first thing they do is try to get you to hate the person who they hate in their community. And Magneto is on it. But that doesn't throw anybody off. So um, Wanda and Pietro join in. They get extremely cool costumes and jump into training, learning combat skills and honing their powers. Someone somewhere in this castle makes some costumes. We get this uh, on page 12. Gorgeous Wanda in profile doing an incredibly generous, elegant pose. I mean, this is like, she looks stunning. It's giving main character as she has throughout this entire issue, um, really stealing the show. Uh, Magneto. They're, they're training. I just want to read this slide. And uh, it's Pietro's thoughts, apparently. They practice like soldiers, Pietro thinks, honing their abilities during makeshift combat scenarios. Toad improves upon his <laughs> Toad improves upon his agility, if not his pathetic disposition. Poor Toad. <laughs> you 
getting slam dunked into the trash this entire book and i'm i'm here for it because i love drama that doesn't involve me um as they're training magneto is just staring at wanda while thinking of his beloved wife um and wanda is clocking this and she's like why is he staring at me so intensely but she gets distracted by toad being abominable uh asking her if she would like to use her powers to alter the probabilities of us becoming intimate because oh what Mortimer. A <laughs> what a line um i mean way to shoot your shot but also he does not do a good job on page 13 he goes full incel mode how dare you disrespect me by not sleeping with me and all the girlies start fighting. But Magneto intervenes to say that sexual harassment is wrong if there's not true love involved. Which it's he's also, like so close. It's also canon from the 1960s. Magneto made Toad wear a metal belt so that he could like toss him around the room more easily as needed. That's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a thing. Oh my God. I used to have a little dog. And um, when we went on walks, he would wear a vest that the leash would attach to so that like the collar wouldn't choke him. But the vest had a handle on the back that I could just pick him up by when he was being too much with other dogs. <laughs> and this is not different. <laughs> on page, uh, yeah, so page 13, Magneto says, if you don't love someone, you don't get to sexually harass them. And Wanda and Pietro start having some second thoughts about this whole arrangement. Maybe we're getting too sexually harassed by Toad. Um, but Pietro insists that it was the right thing to do. Uh, page 14, Wanda is saying, maybe we really should have gone with that Professor Xavier guy. Pietro says that uh, Professor X was too idealistic, which like source, I didn't, I didn't necessarily see that in their conversation, but maybe Pietro's just absorbed some of Magneto's opinions the same way that you do when your friend keeps on like subtweeting someone who they don't like. Um, Xavier melts through the ceiling, so his astral form was there the whole time. So here's a reinterpretation of this. They're not thinking about Xavier at all, but he's like, hmm, I want them to be talking about me since I'm here. <laughs> Wanda's like, oh, maybe we should have gone with them. And he's like, okay, now I feel better. <laughs> you know what? That is what I would love to do with other people, too. He, Yeah, he comes through the ceiling looking like the Capri Sun guy who you turn into if you drink Capri Sun <laughs> in 90s commercials. And Spy on them, getting disappointed. This is what happens when you term search yourself. And then he goes, you know what? I'm going to go bother someone else who I want to be thinking about me. And shoots up out of Magneto's fireplace to say, time to talk to me about my thoughts and opinions. Um, it's very wise my ex FaceTiming me right now. Magneto is trying to have his little, his little moment of reflection. And instead, it is Charles Xavier time. They have a little Aladdin moment, very princess, do you trust me on the balcony? And Xavier takes Magneto on a little magic carpet ride. They have an existential conversation about whether appeasement is the right way to go when you're existing as a marginalized class. Um, this, this sequence is an incredible study, I think, in movement and musculature. Um, you get really just a lot of gorgeous full or half body views of two very muscular men floating through the sky. And it also gives us a great excuse to have like a black velvet poster moment of Wanda and Pietro framed against the night sky as um, Charles Xavier and Magneto discuss them and whether or not it's right to be trying to guide young minds when you are, you know, technically an evil bad guy. 
Now, another 60s canon piece, Magneto could astrally project as well. And there is, I love that you referenced Aladdin because it's very, I can show you the world as they zoom over Paris. But another way to read this scene, which is really interesting, a lot of people will read Magneto and Xavier's old history as they were gay. Uh, and so oh, of course. there's kind of a vibe These of boyfriends. Yeah, they have a vibe of like they broke up because they had differing philosophies. And this is very much Professor X like, are you sure you haven't changed your mind? Because I still love you. Like there's a there's a vibe there of that. Uh, Natalie and, and Ruthann, what were your thoughts on uh, this section of the book, if you have any? Yeah, I mean, I love that they just go on this sort of wild tour through space, but then also randomly hit up Paris. <laughs> That's just like <laughs> the one. It's romantic. Right. Yeah, it is very much into that like exes, uh revisiting romantic haunts. Um yeah. Uh Ruth had any thoughts? Uh, there's a it's a lot of really sort of subtle referencing of the whole parent thing. Like you get the first view of Magneto without his helmet while he's watching them during their training montage, right? And it's the infamous, they have the same hair, right? And he's looking at Wanda, thinking how much she looks like his wife. And then, again, he's got his helmet off uh, right before Charles comes in, which, of course, is the whole point, right? He wears his helmet to keep Charles out of his head. Um, so... <laughs> continuity, again, just to stack this up, 1963 is when these characters first show up. It's not until the mid-80s when we learn about Magneto's backstory as a concentration camp survivor. We learn about Magda. We get the revelation a few years later that Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are his children. So this is a 1996 book adding that data into one of the early stories as a prequel, which is always really fun, which we could do with the Moira McTaggart crazy, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, Ruthann, take, take us through the last uh, five pages of the book. Tell us what happens. All right, so after uh, Charles and Magneto fly romantically over um, the Eiffel Tower, um, Magneto basically says, you've never lost what I've lost. You will never understand why I do what I do. You should, should, should you know, suffering, suffering, and then uh, explodes everybody and shatters their astral connection. I love that panel. And that is fair really because nice. Magneto survived fucking Auschwitz, but Xavier's an orphan. His dad died in an explosion. His mom died of alcoholism. His stepfather died in another explosion. He experienced the death of, of, of soldiers in war telepathically. Uh, so it's it's a fair comparison, but I hate when people trauma stack. This is the therapist part of me. When like, my trauma is so much worse than your trauma, which is why it's okay for me to do this shitty thing. I hate that in real life. <laughs> I mean, it, there does seem to be a lot of that, right? And for people who maybe were lovers or allegedly best friends, they don't, well, Charles seems to know more about Magneto's past, or maybe Magneto is just intentionally misunderstanding. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, Charles can read his mind. <laughs> it's true. So uh, it comes back to Magneto, who's back in, in front of his fireplace. His helmet is back on, uh, and Pietro comes running in because he heard Magneto crying out uh, and mentioning his wife and child. So Magneto then uh, tells, uh, tells Pietro a bit of the story uh, his daughter died. He lost control of his powers that he'd been trying to suppress for so long, killed everybody. And that's when his wife left him uh, uh, because she was afraid. And so then he became Magneto because the other man had lost his fight, basically, because he had no choice left. Um, and with that, he lost his hope. So Pietro was like, is there any way that there's a world where we could coexist without fighting? Um, come hearkening back to, to Charles's ideas and 
Magneto says, to those people, Pietro, I say, I will weep at your funeral while he's looking at a photo of himself and Charles in earlier years, obviously. Oh, and the, the old boyfriend <laughs> days. Right. They do make a fine couple. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> in the picture, I mean, looking, looking. Um, and then the book closes out basically with uh, Pietro on the parapet, staring into the sunset, contemplating the decisions that they've made, trying to decide whether it's the right thing that they're doing. And the more questions he asks, the fewer answers he has and the more questions there are. And then uh, we cut to Xavier again in his office, who is staring at everybody's pictures again and looking at uh, the newspaper headline about the invasion of the island of San Marco, uh, which in the original X-Men number four, that was the whole point of that story, right? So this is the only reference we get to that story here, really. And um, go see an episode I'm also putting out this month on Santo Marco with Rob Salerno, where we're going to explore this concept of what Magneto was doing there. Guys, I'm going deep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then Jean comes in and says, did you call us? And he says, no. And Jean says, I'm sorry, uh, sir. I thought you needed the X-Men. And Charles said, I do, my child. I do. And then caresses Magneto's photo one more time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Sarah and Natalie, uh, thoughts on this final section? That image of uh, of Xavier shattering Magneto's astral presence is my favorite single image in the whole book. I think it's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. It's really beautiful. It is so detailed. Um, again, like this, this the way that these colors are popping against this night sky really is giving velvet painting. Like you know I, I said velvet painting earlier as a joke but it is a very vivid form and I feel that this is a very intentional reference here um I also just think that the the number of fingerprints on the glass of that photo of Magneto must be innumerable I'm also, sure don't, he's got a collage also don't take a black light to that room that's all I'm saying <laughs> <laughs> uh Natalie any final thoughts on this book I really love um, page 19, the sky, which is like shining behind all the panels. And it's so dramatic with the the castle and the sun and the mountains. It's like a beautiful, almost looks like it could be like a lino cut um, with those three colors um, of the backgrounds. And yeah, it just adds like a really beautiful, interesting uh backdrop and and then i do think it's funny to see how frequently like they have to have the the paper or like the physical photos um both magneto and xavier they're always like holding and touching these physical photos because of course they don't have phones uh but it, it's a fun little little relic of the past uh, so to guide listeners on this journey very briefly, if you go through the episodes of this month, we've explored Magneto as a trauma survivor, as a father, as a Nazi hunter, uh, as a kind of man on his own uh, looking for attention, kind of a showman. Here we get him as a leader of mutant kind uh, in an early brotherhood story and some of the weight that he carries. Because in the 60s, we saw him as the raving madman, but we add some complexity with this reinterpretation of stories. This is a great issue. Go look it up and go read it. It's really well worth it for long-term X-Men fans. And the rest of the series, Professor Xavier and the X-Men is also 
a fun read, uh, but uh, but uh, it retells the stories that we've already covered on the show. Uh, this was great. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to read through this and talk and to share your ideas and stories. Uh, as we are wrapping up, I'd love to hear any concluding thoughts any of you have. We're going to put this episode out on the main show on October 23rd. Uh, and I would love to uh, have you share as well where people can find each of you online. And is there anything you would like to plug? Uh, Ruthann, do you want to go first here? Um, I have nothing to plug. Um, <laughs> you can find me on Instagram. I am at Hedda, H-E-D-D-A, dabbler, like Hedda Gabbler, but someone who dabbles in lots of things instead. Um, I love so, fun, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, I don't post often, and I post a weird assortment of things, so I try to live up to the name. Um, final thoughts? I mean, I really enjoyed the book, and now that I've listened to a bunch of people who know what they're talking about in terms of art, talk about the art, I'm going to really enjoy going back and looking at it again. <laughs> Uh, it is really lovely to meet you. I've I, I've enjoyed your vibe online for a long time, but I am a huge fan now. I can't wait to nerd out again sometime. All right, sounds good. Uh, uh, Natalie, would you like to go next? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, first, I want to say thank you for inviting me on. It's been fun to sort of delve into something that I don't normally uh, read. Um, but yeah, it, it's definitely fun to look at this other. Uh, area of comics and and talk to all of you guys who have a little bit more uh context and background and i know i keep even forgetting like the main characters names but <laughs> it was really interesting um in terms of things to plug um my first book dear mini is out now you can get it anywhere uh books are sold and i'm on instagram it's natalie three underscores norris um and then I'm also on Patreon, and I will be serializing Dear Mini Book 2, which is what I did for the first one on Patreon. And so that's uh, patreon.com slash dearmini. And yeah, you can follow along as I make that, which will probably be over the course of two years. <laughs> Uh, it takes it takes a little while. I uh, I'm a really big fan. It's great to meet you and to like just get your vibe and to see your face. But I, Dear Minnie is really impactful. It's a beautiful story. As a as a sexual abuse survivor, as a person who's written a memoir, as a person who reads a lot of comics, this is a really special and unique book. Uh, it's very touching and it touches on a lot of really powerful themes. Uh, highly highly recommended. Please, uh, listeners, go order a copy and uh, share in this beautiful journey. It's an incredible story, and I can't wait for the sequel. So thanks for coming on, Natalie. Uh, and then Sarah. Thank you so much for having me on. It's always such a pleasure. Um, I'm Sarah Gailey, and you can find me online on various social media platforms under the name Sarah Gailey. Um, I'm on Blue Sky and Instagram and Tumblr. I've shut down my Twitter at long last, so don't look for me there. I'm you right on the precipice. I'm gonna, it's going away soon. <laughs> I, d you know what? It was such a weight off my shoulders. As soon as oh. I, as soon as I shut it down, I was like, "Oh, sweet freedom!" Um, you can also find everything you need to know about me on my website, sarahgailey.com. And please do go to your local comic shop or your local bookstore to pick up the collected "Know Your Station," uh, the comic that I created with Liana Kangas about the one percent getting brutally murdered in outer space. And come November, I'm pretty sure November, um, look for White Widow number one at your local comic shop. 
Incredible. Sarah, it's so good to see you. Thank you for coming back. Uh, Sarah and I, this is preemptive, uh, in a little while, are going to be recording a Patreon episode on Kandra, her favorite giant woman. So it's going to be a great time. <laughs> Lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I keep my own social media private, but I've got, because I got kiddos. The three of you are welcome to add me, however, if you would like, now that we have met. Uh, but for now, you can find Gray Malkin PP Lake Podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. Soon I'm going to be just Instagram because I just, I need to simplify my social media life. I hate it. Uh, the next episode coming out immediately after this is going to be the monthly trial for October, which is the Halloween episode. We are featuring the characters Brainchild and Puppet Master. And if you know who these characters are, you will understand they are quite creepy and quite queer and uh, very misogynistic at the same time. Uh, it's going to be a good time. We're recording that in just a few days. The next uh, Patreon coming out immediately after this is all about Asteroid M with Hussein Rashid, which is largely about the concept of mutant homeland uh, that is is explored so thoroughly in the comics. Uh, it's going to be an incredible discussion. Uh, Hussein is one of my very favorite people, uh, so please tune in for that as well. As always, thank you for your support. Thank you, uh, Ruthann. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Natalie. We will see everyone back here next time on Grimalk and Lane. Thank you for listening to Grimalk and Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grimalk and Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.